I wanted to take just a moment and thank you, church, for your prayers for me this past week. Uh, between services last Sunday, I learned that my sister uh, had gone to heaven, and uh, she's spending Christmas with Jesus this year. And uh, so I went down to the Gulf Coast and preached her funeral Wednesday, and I know many of you have shared with me that you prayed for me. Um, my sister um, and my older brother, Horace, are members of a charismatic, independent charismatic church there where my brother, who is 82 years old, is the senior pastor. And uh, I've always joked with my brother, uh, Travis, you'll appreciate this, I've joked with my charismatic brother and my charismatic sister that they were going to heaven if they didn't overshoot. And uh, I made that quote in the, uh, in, the, in the sermon Wednesday at the funeral. But my precious sister uh, is, uh, is the matriarch of our family. You sent beautiful flowers. Many of you don't know that, but you did. And uh, our family was greatly blessed by that gesture. Well, I want to ask you to take your, your outline and do something for me. Uh, you'll notice down uh, number two says, a prepared woman. Would you make a note out by that that simply says, next week? Would you do that? <laughs> next week. Uh, I, as I sent this outline in uh, Thursday, I fully intended to do both. And the more I've studied and reflected and prayed, I want to save that for next Sunday. We're doing actually a four-week series on being prepared for Christmas. And last week we talked about how God prepared the world for Christmas by giving us four gospel accounts of the life of Jesus. And how that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all like a divine kaleidoscope, give us a different perspective on the birth of Christ. Matthew presenting him as the king who deserves our homage and our worship. Mark, who presents Jesus as a servant, doesn't even deal with the genealogy of Jesus because who cares about a servant? But he presents Jesus as one who emulates and models for us true servanthood. Luke presents him as the perfect man. And so he gives us that account in Luke chapter 2 where the shepherds come, one of their own, and, uh, and, and see the Savior. And then John, bless his heart, John goes back all the way to the beginning. And John presents him before time. And so we are to worship Jesus not as a, 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 a man, but as God. And so we looked at those different aspects last week of how God prepared the world. I want us to continue today on, on looking at how God prepared the world for the coming of Christ. God prepared the world in a providential sort of way. And this study has meant a great deal to me because it, as much as last week's study, lets me know how God is working behind the scenes. I have two texts that uh, you will see on the screen. The first is Luke chapter 2 and verse 1. As we ask the question today, are you prepared 
for Christmas. Luke chapter 2 and verse 1 simply says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Now, the, the phrase, in those days, not any day, but special days. Those days were the days on God's calendar. Those were appointed days. No other day would do. In those days, a decree went out. Now, why were those days special days? And why was that on God's calendar for the coming of Christ? Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4 will enlarge our understanding of that because Galatians 4 4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. Notice the phrase, the fullness of time. The pleroma of chronos. The fullness, pleroma is the same Greek word used when we are told in, Galatia, uh, in Ephesians 5.18 to be filled with the Spirit. The word pleroma is an interesting word. It was used to fill the sails of a boat with wind. What he's saying is that in the pleroma of time, at exactly the right time, God expressed in chronos or chronological time, God sent his son. Now there was a reason for the timing of God. He didn't do it in some kind of accidental way. He didn't do it in a careless way. He did it in a planned way. Now, my mentor, one of my strongest mentors was Ron Dunn. And Ron Dunn taught me this many, many years ago. Often God is most active when you think he is the least active. Now, let me say that one more time because some of you need to hear that this morning. Sometimes God is most active when we think he is least active. Sometimes God's presence is real even when we think he didn't get an invitation to the meeting. God, God's presence permeates a place sometimes, but we may not recognize it at the moment. I'm sure Joseph had difficulty understanding how God was at work when he was sold into Egyptian slavery. But, but Galatians, I mean, Genesis chapter 50 tells us that Joseph said to his brothers, when you sold me into slavery, you meant it for evil, but listen to this church, but God meant it for good. And so you see, sometimes God is most at work when you think he's least at work. Paul understood that. And that was the underpinning of his theological statement in Romans 8, 28, that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purposes. What made Paul 
enabled to write that statement that he could say with absolute assurance not we think all things work together or we hope all things work together but we know absolutely certain for the believer who loves God and is surrendered to the purposes of God whatever God allows to come into his life is going to be used for a good purpose now sometimes it doesn't feel good sometimes it doesn't it hurts doesn't it but yet God is at work. Now, in the period of time from the closing of the Old Testament to the opening of the New Testament have often been called the silent years. It's a period of time, 400 years, that we have no revelation, no prophets, and it seems that God has locked up heaven and there is no word from heaven for 44 years. But I want to say to you, I beg to disagree. For those 400 years, far from being silent years, were years when God was working behind the scenes to prepare the world for the birth of Christ. Now I want us to look at it just for a moment. At the close of the Old Testament, the seat of the world empire was in the east. Media Persia was in control of Judea and the Israelites. Asia was the center of world dominion. 400 years later, when the New Testament opens, the seat of the world empire is in the west. It is in Rome, and it has stayed in the west ever since. It has never returned to the east. At the close of the Old Testament, Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, is lord over Palestine. At the opening of the New Testament, Caesar is lord over the Holy Land. At the close of the Old Testament, Judea is under Jewish, gov a Jewish governor. At the opening of the New Testament, Judea is under a Roman deputy, Herod the Great. At the close of the Old Testament, there are no Greek cities in Palestine. At the opening of the New Testament, there are Greek cities everywhere. What happened in that 400-year period of time, and what significance does that have for us as New Testament Christians? At the close of the Old Testament, the temple is the one built by Zerubbabel in Ezra chapter 5. At the opening of the New Testament, the temple was rebuilt by Herod the Great. At the close of the Old Testament, there is no mention either in the Old Testament or in the Acropolis. Well, I'll get it out in a minute. I got my nose fixed. Now my mouth won't work. At the end of the New Testament, there are no synagogues. But something happened during that interbiblical period. Synagogues sprung up and were everywhere. Now, that's an incredibly important, insightful thing. You see, in the close of the Old Testament, the Hebrews had to read their Old Testament in Hebrew. At the opening of the New Testament, there is a Greek translation called the Septuagint that's accessible to all the people. Now, those are interesting little historical sidelines. Accidents? Hardly. Let's look at how God prepared the world in the fullness of time. Now, first of all, there is what I call religious preparation. Religious preparation. Now, God prepared the world religiously, number one, through prophetic Scripture. All throughout the Old Testament, God is hinting 
And those hints grow stronger and stronger and stronger that somebody's coming. Somebody's coming. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, listen, at the first mention of the coming Savior, he says, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. I mean, three chapters into the writing of the Old Testament, and God is already hinting to the fact that a woman is going to have a baby, and that baby is going to be responsible for crushing the head of Satan. You see, God, even then, was beginning to prepare the world for the fact that somebody's coming, and that somebody is very, very important. God continues through the prophets to speak in Genesis 49 verse 10 that somebody is going to be of the tribe of Judah. In Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14 tells us that that somebody is going to be born of a virgin. Listen to what he says. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and you'll call his name Emmanuel. God with us. Somebody's coming. The Old Testament prophet is saying, somebody's coming. He'll be a a child born of a woman. He'll be a virgin. He'll be of the tribe of Judah. And Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 says, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Prince of Peace, the Everlasting Father. And in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, he even gets down to the specifics. This someone who is coming, this someone who's born of a virgin, this someone who will be the mighty God, this someone is going to be born in Bethlehem. Micah chapter 5 and verse 2 tells us, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who art too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth shall be from old Wow, somebody's coming. So we're prepared. The Lord was preparing the world for the coming of His Son and our Savior by prophetic Scripture. And there were those that were ready to give up. There were those that were saying, well, it's been so many hundreds of years and He's not come yet. But I remind us that the Lord said, my thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways. And I remind you that the Scripture also says that a thousand years is as one day with the Lord. Have you ever thought about how empty the Old Testament would be without the New Testament? The Old Testament without the New Testament is revelation without destination. The Old Testament without the New Testament is promise without fulfillment. The Old Testament without the New Testament is preparation without consummation. In other words, the Old Testament without the New Testament is being all dressed up with nowhere to go. The Lord is preparing through prophetic scripture. Number two, the Lord is preparing through the Babylonian captivity. Now this is amazing. You know, God sent the children of Israel to Babylon for 70 years as an act of discipline to them for their gross immorality 
and gross idolatry. But notice this, that even in his discipline, God is preparing the world for the coming of his Savior. That only God can take discipline and in his providence use that discipline for a good purpose. Uh, Let me give you some examples of how God used the Babylonian captivity to prepare the world for the coming of Christ. Number one, the Babylonian captivity cured Israel forever of idolatry. You know, the Lord sent them to Babylon because of their gross idolatry, their worship of Baal and Asherah, their building of the high places on every mountain in Israel. There was a place to worship these false gods. And, and God said, in Vincent's paraphrase, I'm tired of it. And so God sent them to the woodshed. He sent them to Babylon. But do you know what happened while they were in Babylon? He cured them of idolatry. Israel never again had a problem of idolatry. God was purifying them, moving them back to monotheistic faith, preparing them for the coming of the Son of God. A part of that also that happened in Babylon was the establishment of the synagogue. This is important. You know, in the Old Testament, you never hear the word synagogue. But when the New Testament opens, there are synagogues everywhere. Why? Well, because when the children of Israel were taken to Babylon, it decentralized their worship. They no longer had access to the temple. And so they had to find some way to study the Word of God, to understand the prophets of old. And so they formed synagogues. And to, be, to make a synagogue, there only had to be 10 Jewish families. And the synagogue focused on two things, exposition of Scripture and worship dominantly exposition of Scripture. So what happened in that Babylonian captivity is that God moved His people back to a Word-centered community of faith. God used, moved His people away from feel-goody religion to a worship-centered, a Word-centered focus. You'll notice that in the Old Testament and during the Babylonian captivity, another thing took place. How many Pharisees do you hear about in the Old Testament? Zero. Then when the the New Testament opens 400 years later, the leading religious party in Israel is what? The Pharisees. Where did they come from? The Pharisee movement was a movement back to orthodoxy in Jewish life. They were moving toward liberalism. The Sadducees didn't even believe in spirits. They didn't believe in the afterlife. And so the Pharisees began to focus back on the Word of God. They were started for a very good reason. To bring the nation of Israel's religious life back to being Word-centered. But what happened is they went to seed. And they put the letter of the law above the spirit of the law. And they became defenders of their opinions about the Word rather than defenders of the Word itself. There's always a danger of legalism. And they began to look down their religious noses at everybody else. Paul, remember, was a Pharisee. Well, that was preparing the world for the coming of Christ because it was moving us back to the Word of God. Well, so that was the God prepared through prophetic scripture. 
God prepared through the Babylonian captivity. Number three, God prepared the world from what I call a despairing heathenism. A despairing heathenism. There was rampant in the world during that interbiblical period a rampant heathenism. The ancient world as a whole was almost entirely in darkness, and with the darkness came the worst vices imaginable. One out of every two people you met on the street under Roman rule was a slave. If you saw a building being built, it was being built by a slave. If you saw a street being swept, it was swept by a slave. If you saw a tutor carrying kids to their educational classes, that tutor was a pedagogue. That pedagogue was a slave. Half of the world's population were slaves. That meant they were considered to be chattel. They were, they were meant to be without any value except what value they can be to me. A terrible, terrible culture. Paganism, heathenism was rampant everywhere. We see that, that emptiness in religion. Now, that's a bad thing, but it's also a good thing. Because that bad thing began to work on their hearts and saying, surely there's more than this. Surely this old pagan religion is not all there is. And their hearts begin to hunger and search for reality. And out of that despairing heathenism, hallelujah, God stepped in. And God sent his son. And, 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 that, and that son was the answer to that void in their heart. And Jesus became the answer. And we're seeing that happen even in our world today. Do you know that, that, that the fastest growing churches in, in Christianity today are in Iran and China? You know why? Because there's, there's a despairing heathenism. Islam is not filling the vacuum in their heart. Islam is, is putting a lot of rules on people, but it doesn't give them any power to live it out. Islam is suppressing people. And, and then in, in China, you've got all of these, these old heathen religions plus atheism and communism, and their hearts are in a vacuum. And Jesus is stepping in to thousands of those empty hearts. Wouldn't it be wonderful if this Christmas, in our culture that is so impacted by cultured heathenism, that Jesus could step in? Oh, God's preparing the world religiously through despairing heathenism. And then, fourthly, God is, had prepared the world through what I call a messianic hope. And it just parallels this despairing heathenism. You see, during the interbiblical period and during the Babylonian captivity, God began to speak through some of the prophets. And I won't take time to read it. I don't have time this morning. You see why I knocked that last whole section off. I, I, we'll get it next week. Uh, but Daniel chapter 9, one of the greatest prophecies in the Old Testament. It's that, it's that time when Daniel tells us about the, the 70 weeks. You, you know that, 70 weeks of years. And, and we, we, we can't go into that. But in, in, in Daniel, he talks about how that God has 
70 weeks of years lined up. And he, he gives an almost exact time for when the Messiah will be cut off, when he'll be killed. Now, that means that he's getting close to the time when the Messiah would be born. So there was in Hebrew life, and even the wise men, how do you think they knew to be scanning the sky? Who was the chief astrologer in Babylon? Daniel. Don't you think that Daniel had impacted the theology of these oriental monotheists? Yes. There's a resonating hopefulness that God's going to do something. You know how we see that? We see it in Luke, in, in Luke's gospel, when they bring Jesus to the temple to dedicate him. And there's an old man and an old woman there, Simeon and Anna. Now listen, listen to this. This is Luke 2, 25 and following if you want to look it up. It says, now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout. Now listen to this. Waiting for the consolation of Israel. Let me translate that for you. Messianic hope. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Oh, my. There was a messianic expectation. Was that an accident? Oh, no. God was preparing the world religiously. I, I must hurry. Number two, God prepared the world, not only religiously, but God prepared the world culturally. I, I don't have to take much time on this one. But how did God prepare the world culturally? Well, you see, when during this silent years, <laughs> God raised up a man named Philip of Macedon. And Philip of Macedon put together a lot of Greek states. And he began to conquer his part of the world. And the Greeks regained great prominence and power. And then when he died, a young 20-something named Alexander, his son, later called Alexander the Great, expanded on what his father Philip had done, and he conquered the known world by the time he was 30 years old. But what did Alexander do? He not only spread the authority of Greek, he spread Greek culture. And most importantly, he spread Greek language. So for the first time, in the known world, there was a worldwide language that could communicate with each other. Is that just an accident that the New Testament is written in, guess what? Greek. Greek. For the first time in the history of the world, there's a language where you can communicate the truth of the gospel and people all over the world can hear it and understand it without an interpreter. Do you see what he meant when he said in the fullness, in the pleroma of chronos, in the fullness of time? 
Well, let me close by just a word about how God not only prepared the world religiously and culturally, but God prepared the world politically. Oh, oh, the Greek empire was really fairly short-lived. And then there came on the scene Rome. Rome, the Roman Empire. They conquered the Holy Land, remember? And when the New Testament opens, there is Herod the Great, who's in charge of the Holy Land. Now, what did they do culturally to prepare, I'm talking, I mean, politically, to prepare the world for the coming of the Savior. Well, let me just catalog some things for you. Number one, write down the word Pax, P-A-X, Romana, if you're taking notes. Pax Romana. That means enforced peace. All over the Roman Empire, they cured the world of piracy and burglary and robbery. Soldiers scattered all over the known world to protect people's rights so that people didn't have to fear anymore. The Pax Romana allowed the gospel to be spread without fear. They could, number two, they could walk down Roman roads. Do you know some of those roads are still extant today? I've walked on them. So an enforced peace and Roman roads, guess what? They spread, the, the, the speed of the gospel spread all over the world. But not just roads. There was a penchant for religious freedom that permeated the Roman Empire. What do I mean by that? The Romans would allow local peoples to worship as they pleased, as long as they didn't interfere with Rome. And that went well for the early days of Christianity. It was only when some of these rabid authorities began to require the church to express worship to Caesar that it became a problem. But in the early days of the spread of Christianity, that penchant for religious freedom prepared the world for the spreading of the gospel that the Messiah had been born. Well, one other thing, and it's just, it's just such a, what, what the world would say, incidental thing. The Romans began to perfect the postal system. Wow. Easy access to spend, send correspondence from one city to another. Isn't it amazing? <laughs> and all of these little incidental, accidental things that happen. No. In the fullness of time. Well, now we come to the so what period and I'm through. Number one, here's what I'd drop in your spirit. Listen to this. When it appears that God is inactive in your life, my dear friend, don't believe a word of it.
Because sometimes God is most active when you think he's the least active. You're here this morning, not by accident, but by providence. Number two, God is faithful to keep his promises. If he says it, take it to the bank. And number three, God has a time table. God does things certain times. Daniel, God's timetable. God's timetable. Those years weren't wasted. Now your testimony rings with a power and an authority it could never had otherwise. You're here today. God has a timetable for you. It could be that this is the fullness of time for you. This Christmas could be your time to experience his fullness by giving your heart and life to Jesus.